Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Queued Up Podcast on Podcasting. While we often try to teach you all how to improve your audio, increase audience engagement, and boost your discoverability in order to make your podcast famous, today's episode is going to be about some of the negatives of reaching those heights. Today I'm joined by fellow Queued Up teammate and guest host for this episode, Isabel Monjo, as well as special guests Lindsay O.K. and Chrissy Freud to talk about the dark side of internet fame. Both Chrissy and Lindsay are masters at their craft, earning quite an online following for their work. However, with a following that most podcasters would covet, comes some pretty awful things as well. As such, we'll be having an earnest and open discussion about some sensitive topics that might trigger some people. We'll be covering topics like online and in-person harassment, stalking, rape, suicide, and death threats in today's episode. While we certainly understand those subjects may be too difficult to listen to and are a departure from our normal topics, we went into this panel with the idea of showing how bad cyberbullying can truly get. We hope that by talking about our experiences so openly and vulnerably, we can provide a much-needed voice to the victims, better inform those that easily dismiss cyberbullying as harmless, and curb some of the vile behaviors seen online, hopefully making the world just a little bit better of a place. However, the biggest impact can come from all of you listeners out there. We ask that you share this week's episode and any related graphics on your social media feeds. Make it clear that you stand with the victims of such abuse and that you'll no longer be putting up with it when you see it online. By making our collective voices louder, we can make a serious difference. With our trigger warning and explanation out of the way, let's finally dive into today's special episode of the Queued Up Podcast on Podcasting. Today we have a very special episode. We're going to be talking about the dark side of internet fame uh, with some wonderful guests. As always, I'm Matthew Stevens, the host of the Queued Up Podcast. I'm joined with a face and a, a voice you probably remember. Isabel Monjo. How you doing, Izzy? Good, good. How are you? I'm I'm doing all right. We also have Chrissy Freud. We also have Lindsay OK. Lindsay, we'll start with you. Uh can you kind of introduce yourself? Where where might people know you from? How might they know you? I'm an NFL writer, blogger, media person. <laughs> I got my start on social media and then I've kind of gone off and done a couple things from there. So that's probably how people would know me the best is from social media. Excellent. And Chrissy, how about yourself? Where might people know you or be able to find you? Well, I've basically worked for every single network that exists under the sun. So I think I've narrowed it down from seven to like two now. So a lot of people know me from USA Today Sports Media Group. Then outside of that, we have like the draft network. I feel like that was kind of a big deal for me because I've always been super focused on quarterback analysis and stuff like that. It's kind of like my niche. And so after the Zach Wilson thing, um, I ended up on Paul Feinbaum. So I think a little bit more people knew who I was. But I, it was kind of weird how I, I kind of started out with probably between like three and 5,000 followers and hung around there. And then over time, I guess between building this brand and then just kind of speaking out on things that don't sit well with me in the industry, I've kind of resonated with more people than I ever thought that I would. And so between that and then uh, just specializing in one area, it's like my following has grown to something that I didn't really think that it would be. But basically, I guess it comes down to a media presence more than anything else for me. Excellent. 
to peel back the curtain a little bit, I know both of you have worked with both of you in some capacity. Uh, Chrissy, we were both you know, managing editors at USA Today for, for various teams. And we've been floating around NFL circles for, for the last handful of years. Uh, Lindsay, you and I worked together actually at Raven's Wire at USA Today for a little bit, and we've done some podcast stuff together. And again, just kind of always floated around in, in very similar circles in a lot of capacity. So I know both you ladies work ridiculously hard. Again, thanks for, for joining us on here. Um, I know you guys have probably a ton of other things that are perhaps even more important to, to be doing today, but I uh, want to give you guys a quick shout out on that stuff. Something that I think is going to become important is as, at the time of recording, Chrissy, you have 11,000, a little over 11,000 followers on Twitter. And Lindsay, you have just shy of 43,000 followers on Twitter. That's not in a sense to brag or anything like that, but it is more of a pointing out uh, your level of, and I'm going to use air quotes here, kind of internet fame. You, you guys both get, uh, get in front of a lot of people, which is both awesome and horrifying, as we're going to find out here shortly. Matt and I are the base today. We are the average Joe. <laughs> we are the data point zero <laughs> on our internet <laughs> presence. And uh, yeah, so we'll have, it's, it'll be interesting to have people of all different levels, I think, in this discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Izzy and myself, I think both hover right around like the, the 1,000 to 1,500 mark on Twitter. Again, that's, that's not the end all be all in terms of a measure of success by any means, but it is a good point just to throw out how, again, kind of quote unquote, internet famous we are, or, or lack thereof, and how much attention in turn we get on social media. You know, we all have heard about internet trolls. We've all heard about cyberbullying. I don't think anyone that's listening to the show, I don't think anyone that's been on this show doesn't know the term, doesn't know the idea. But I don't think that everyone realizes that being in this position, we all recognize you're going to get criticism. But where does criticism kind of go too far? When, when does that become too much? Um, we'll start with you, Chrissy. Kind of what's that point for you where a criticism of your work turns into something that's just more of a personal attack than anything else? For one, I actually had to contact Fan Cited earlier this year because someone had pretty much written a hit piece about me because I put Zach Wilson over Trevor Lawrence, which a lot of people started to do after I did. But there was someone on this Clemson site that had written something and it was like, it's one thing, you know, the aggregation trend, I'm not a big fan, but it is something. And so there's a correct way to write this piece. Okay, so you're, you're a Clemson guy. You, like 95% of other people, think that Trevor Lawrence is better than Zach Wilson. And I'm the first person to say that Zach Wilson is better than Trevor Lawrence. You don't like that. Okay, cool. Well, you know what? You go in there and you go quote it and you say, Chrissy Freud of USA Today Sports Media Group said blah, blah, blah. Or Chrissy Freud of the Draft Network said blah, blah, blah. Uh, we understand why she says this, but we think that it's wrong because here are my facts. No, that's not what this was. This was, they called me a quote, unquote, a quarterback interviewer according to her biography. It's pretty obvious that if you go look at my... Um, look at my name, you can see that I work for a national media outlet. And that is disrespectful, especially when you're working for fan sided. So when you're doing that, you need to have at least the respect to uh, call my outlet by name, as opposed to calling me a quarterback interviewer, because that's only about 25% of my job. And then to say other things in the article, like, after that, she started tweeting about things that were not even relevant to the conversation. Well, this is my Twitter, I can tweet whatever I want to whenever I want to. And whenever people are going underneath this article and saying, she must be dating Zach Wilson. She must be doing this with Zach Wilson in order to put him above Trevor Lawrence. 
that's a personal attack on me. And if I want to say something about that, I am more than welcome to in my own space. And you are not going to go on your little media outlet and go say something about that. And so I contacted the editor, someone who I used to know pretty well. And he did agree, okay, this is towing the line. And I tell you right now, if you go, the article's still up there. There's still things I don't like about it. But if you look at it in the original version, that article is about halfway white, like halfway completely different than it used to be. That, I'd say, hit home for me in a different way because I was like, I had like that really bad online thread in June, which I usually don't go into much detail about anymore because it was 11 pages long. It was very disgusting and very in detail um, in a way that like I could barely even, I wrote a whole story about it. It's on the internet. There was that, there was the other thing. And then the other thing that I tweeted about the other day that I see so often is it's not all men, obviously. There are men who are very supportive of women in this industry. But the thing that I cannot stand, and I've seen it on other women's posts, and I saw it recently on my uh, 2021 SEC quarterback rankings ahead of the season, is I don't agree with this. This is why women shouldn't cover men's sports. It's honestly like, I wouldn't say hurtful, but it, I guess, sparks a special rage inside of you whenever you comment something like that under my specialty. Whenever I don't think anyone, I, I'm not saying I'm the first, but I hadn't really seen very many people ranking SEC quarterbacks. And I can tell you right now that when people make their rankings late in the season, it's not everyone, but there are some people, sometimes they're looking at other people's and they're taking ideas from that. So to be one of the first people, you're bold and you're really putting your stuff out there. And you're really putting yourself up for criticism. And so for someone to be that disrespectful, it just doesn't sit well with me. And it's funny because a lot of these people, I've met people like this that are like, why would they're kind of on the fence about women covering men's sports? I've met them in person before. And it's funny because I'll get into an argument with them over there. Not, not an argument, but just kind of be like, hey, so like, why do you think this? And they have no substance. I, well, I like him because he's a good quarterback. He just, he throws the ball well. He, and it ends there. And it just stutters, stutters, stop because they, they have no actual idea. And so every time that I see comments like this, that's kind of what plays in the back of my mind. It's interesting. You kind of mentioned that just simply having an opinion as a woman, especially. And, and look, I, I think it's no mistake or no coincidence that it's me as the host and there's three women. The fact of the matter is, is I know ladies get far more hate than guys do. And we'll get into the stats here in a little bit. But, you know, simply having an opinion, it's it's one thing to uh, disagree with it. Like you mentioned, it's another thing to dismiss it completely out of hand. And it's another thing to go kind of personally against you and and bash your profession, bash your, your professionalism. And it's something that I think happens far too often. And I know, Lindsay, I know this rings true for you as well. And I know you know, I've seen a lot of the hate you get firsthand, and it's very much the same thing. You have an opinion, you're a woman, that's unacceptable to a significant number of people um, for no good reason other than, again, you're just a woman. So, Especially in sports. Especially in sports, you're right. I cannot think of a more volatile landscape for a woman who's a public figure than the sports world. I think that that is probably, you guys, unfortunately... <laughs> probably get the worst of it. And something that you were saying that really stuck with me is that even if you give a mainstream opinion, the default's always going to be this is why women shouldn't be in sports. No matter what your opinion is, no matter how well-researched it is, you will always be sort of disregarded, I think, and discredited because it's not an area traditionally that we've seen women in. You know, again, I've seen a lot of the hate both you guys get. It seems that... Um and and you guys can speak to this certainly better than I can, but Chrissy, you mentioned that 
you know, a lot of the the hate you get, a lot of the personal attacks you get don't have any substance behind it. I find that a lot of the people that are doing a lot of this don't really have a good rhyme or reason behind it. They don't have facts on their side. They don't have an, an argument, really. It's just simply, I disagree with you, so I'm going to go to the dark place that I can. I'm going to attack you however I possibly can in order to make you feel pain. And Lindsay, I mean, I, again, where does criticism of your work go from just criticism that's like, okay, cool, we can have a debate about it, we can talk about it, you don't like this guy, I like this guy, that's fine. Where does that go into, it's just now a personal attack for you? I've notoriously blocked a lot of people on Twitter, and a lot of people like to say, why do you block people that disagree with you? That's not what I do at all. I block you if you act like trash. Like, there's one thing to say, for example, I'm ranking these quarterbacks one through five. It's one thing to say, I disagree with you. I think Josh Allen should be number three. Here's why. I don't need you to come at me and say, you're ugly. You're stupid. Why is Josh Allen not number one? Like, I'm totally just throwing Josh Allen's name out here. I don't think he's number one at all. But there's a line that you cross. The second that you cross that line into anything other than productive debate is what I'm trying to say. I mean, you can disagree with me all day. I don't care. But this, the second that you make it personal, the second that you come for my job, like this is a lot of people don't understand, like this is my job. Like I don't come into your work every day and tell you how stupid you are, how bad you are at your job. That's the line for me is the second that you get personal, the second that you start name calling. I feel like as this conversation goes further, we'll get into more of like the darker things. But um, I wish that was all I got, to be honest with you. That's a point worth highlighting specifically, Lindsay, is that, you know, we're mentioning things of like, all right, so somebody calls you stupid or somebody calls you ugly or somebody, you know, again, just disagrees with your opinion. Okay, that's that's kind of the least of the issues at hand. And I know one of the things that I see when I see people go, oh, it's not that bad is thinking that's it, that it's schoolyard bullying. And it is. And it's worth also pointing out that while that stuff is easy enough to ignore to a certain degree, like, all right, fine. Yeah, it irks me, but whatever. Like, just I'll block you. It's another thing when you have a following of 10, 40,000 people of you're getting a thousand messages. I mean, like you're, you can't be on Twitter anymore because it's just a flood of terrible messages. And if those are the nicest ones, that should give you a point of just how terrible it really can be. And again, I know both you guys have gone through this, but do you think that the sheer number of terrible comments play a big factor in maybe increasing it from from a victim standpoint, from increasing how terrible it feels? Or do you think it's just all of them are really bad and volume is just volume, but the message themselves are bad enough? It's like almost a trend for these people. Once one person says it, then everybody else just hops on and everybody else does it too. As you were saying before, Matt, when people were thinking like that, oh, it's just schoolyard bullying. The audacity that people have online is unparalleled to real life. I think sometimes when one person says and everyone starts jumping on it, it's just easier for it to snowball and people get bolder. Like the more public online it is, the bolder people become. And that's that's a problem because then there's just no pushback. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've had people go after my family. There's a reason I don't put any personal stuff online anymore. I don't any all of my relationships, friendships, you won't see it because I people are mean enough to me. I don't want to subject anybody else to that. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. 
Chrissy, I mean, can you speak a little bit about uh, the kind of like volume thing? I, I don't I don't know if you've received it maybe necessarily as as badly as I've seen Lindsay get it, where there's just like whole Twitter threads just spent bashing her. But can you speak to the volume issue as well, Chrissy? Yeah, I kind of go back to the Zach Wilson thing. And I will say just speaking on volume in general, that since I've had a lot more followers, that it's definitely gotten worse because there's just more people. Because when you think about the domino effect, if you have like 10,000 followers or so, I've kind of looked at the analytics a little bit. And even like the smallest tweets I put out will usually get at least like 80,000 impressions. So think about how many people that is just seeing something that I'm just randomly saying as opposed to something bigger. I will say that Lindsay has definitely gotten more than anyone that I've ever seen. Because I mean, that's, it really is unlike any other internet personality that I've ever seen. It's like she's specifically targeted and it's like she gets punished for being more outspoken. And because I think that she's kind of has this way of being able to, to like actually say something to people, whereas I don't, I usually don't like say something back as much until like I've finally had it. And whenever she stands up for herself, it's like, it's like if you stand up for yourself that it gets a million times worse and they just like feed off of it. But at the same token, like you have to say something because, You really don't just sit there and take it. I've been on both sides of the fence with that. But yeah, I mean, whenever I said the Zach Wilson thing, there were a lot of people that like three people had said something disrespectful. And then a couple of them were like prominent people in the Clemson fan base. And so then it became this thing that was more acceptable. It was almost like, oh, everyone should come here and go comment something nasty or something rude. And it's funny that you mentioned the former coworker, however, the connection was because there was someone who was invited to speak to my college journalism class who has twice said something that was borderline sexist underneath my post whenever I'm sending out like an analytical take on something, which is appalling to me because I've literally almost called it the, the professor before and been like, you should probably not have this person come speak to your class anymore because do you see the stuff that they're leaving under my um, tweets and the fact that they work for a local news station? That's a pretty unsettling to me. And I've always said, like, he's done it twice. And I'm like, the, the third time that he does it, which I've heard this from a lot of other women that also went to LSU, saying that this guy has said similar things to them. I'm like, the third time he says this, I'm literally just going to quote tweet him. Like, this is the third time that you've said something that is borderline sexist. And you're questioning my opinion from professional to professional. And I don't follow you and you don't follow me. So exposed. Which I don't, I don't like to do that because it creates a drama. But I mean, there comes a point in time when I, I, feel, I feel like some people, especially like the professionals that do it, which is sad that they do, they kind of get away with it because no one's going to really say anything to them because they're a professional and they're not really saying it too outwardly. But I mean, they, they start to toe the line. I think that they need to be called out too because that's just unacceptable. A lot of them are men. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. You mentioned, you know, you're, you get about 80,000 impressions and it's, again, I want to highlight the volume side of things in that if 1% of that 80,000 impressions earn a comment that is negative. And it could be something as simple as just like, I disagree. That's 8,000 messages. I mean, that, that I, I use Twitter. I have tweet deck up right now. It, it's that makes your Twitter effectively unusable from a comment standpoint, from a, a audience engagement standpoint, 8,000 people are going to no better way of saying it. They're going to shit talk you. And as you mentioned, they kind of get emboldened. Each one gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And I think it's a shame you had mentioned that, you know, like the third time is the third strike. It sucks that 
it takes three times for that to happen. And, and that's certainly, Chrissy, I, I, I completely agree with you. It causes more trouble sometimes than it's worth. It's calling that type of stuff out absolutely and usually does make it worse to where now it's a one versus one thing. Fan bases are aligned on both sides and it becomes like this weird personal, like a football game, attack on one another for no good reason. So I totally get it. But it's a shame that there's this feeling. And again, I've experienced it myself. I'm sure we all have to where we can't call that stuff out the very first time. We can't go, whoa, this is unacceptable. You're a professional. I'm a professional. You know better than this for sure. Random internet, Joe, uh-huh. fine, whatever. But like, it sucks that we can't call that stuff out initially for fear of professional repercussions. And then also just it's baiting more hate. If I'm calling it out every time that I see it, since I have so many more people that are doing this to me than the average person because of that volume, it looks like I'm whining about it all the time. And I've actually tweeted about that before, too, whenever I've gotten really um, upset, because I've noticed that whenever I call something out about women in sports or call someone out about doing something, I will lose an average of five to 10 followers. And I'm like, in a way, I'm like, good runnings. And in a way, I'm like, why we're that's kind of weird that there are that many people that have the same opinion as that person. But whenever you have a lot of followers and you call it out every time, there are going to be people that stand on the sidelines that are like, that have maybe like 2000 followers or something like that or less. And they're going to be like, Oh, she complains all the time, which I've gotten that too. I've had people comment. She's an attention seeker. She does this all the time for attention. I'm like, no. And do you want to put yourself in my shoes and see how you feel? I get that a lot too. Yeah. I, again, I can't imagine. I mean, just, Sheer the sheer audiences, and yeah, as as you mentioned, and and I again, I've seen, I've seen it from from both of you the the comments back on stuff like that when you go like, all right, enough is enough, this is uncalled for. Just like again, it it just gets worse. It's it's inviting, as terrible as it sounds, it's like inviting just another wave of it to where it's just it makes you weary to ever discuss it, which is part of the reason why this is a discussion that we're having now is I don't think a lot of people realize, again, how bad it gets because we're almost afraid to confront it publicly because of how bad it ends up getting uh, as a result of that. So what is sort of frustrating on top of all of this is, like you said, when you do call it out that 5% of the time, you don't want to be perceived as sensitive or, you know, like there's just even more names that they can call you just based off your reaction to something that's really terrible you know now they have another layer of like material to attack you with in a way yeah the second i block somebody i'm so soft but like meanwhile Mm -hmm. this person like made fun of my dog for being sick how is that okay i get told all the time like you need to have tougher skin like chrissy said why are you complaining like you asked for this um it comes with the territory like i could go on and on anytime i i call any of it out that's what i get in return on the flip side, like I find myself telling people, like I've had conversations like face to face with people and they're like, man, how do you deal with that? And I find myself saying nine times out of 10, I'm used to it. And it's sad that I have to say that, but I really am like, I'm used to it. Not, not a day goes by. I'm like, Oh, another mean comment. Like it's sad. It really is. Yeah. I guess let's talk a little bit about our experiences specifically. I mean, we, we've kind of beaten around the bush a little bit here, talked about some of the, the more mild things. Um, I'll kind of kick off this conversation because I know, you know, this is tough, but I want to highlight just how bad it truly gets. And in my personal experience, I think it was uh, I was writing about the New England Patriots uh, or had some comment in there 
again, all this discussion talks about football, but it's not just about football. But I, I wrote an article in which I said something about the Patriots, nothing terrible, nothing that I think wasn't supported or just was worth this by any means. But I received a death threat to my email. And I don't put my email address out there. I don't let people find me in that way because I, I know what's up. And somebody had found it, emailed me, and had kind of specific information about where I lived or where I had lived recently and said that they were going to come get me. And on one hand, personally, I blew it off where it's like, yeah, sure, whatever. No one's going to go through that. But then the more you think about it, the more it's, well, someone had to search around online to find me, to find my personal email address, which again, is nowhere else. And it's not exactly easy to find me online a lot of the times anyway, even though I'm, I'm, I was a more public persona. But someone found out where I lived or where I had lived the last apartment that I had owned at the time and felt the need to tell me that they were going to kill me. And again, it's easy to kind of brush that off and go like, yeah, sure, sure, sure. But anytime anyone's gone through that level of work, you have to, at least in the back of your mind, go, well, what? I mean, how much more work are they going to put in for this? That's not a far leap to then get in your car and come get me. And then for years afterwards, you know, you get like a random box you don't expect. Well, is that someone that's found me that didn't like an opinion and didn't bother sending an email first to let me know that they were going to come get me? They're just coming to get me. And this is this is a dead pet. This is uh, something like that. Is is that what's coming? Uh, I had a I had a daughter and this is the first time I'm actually saying publicly online that I've had a daughter because of the hate that comes with that, the hate that someone could potentially find out my daughter's name where they go to school, where they go to daycare, and then make things even worse or take a photo and Photoshop something and get to me that way. And I know we've talked about, we don't want to kind of include our family or our friends or other people in our lives because that hate tends to trickle over. That sucks. Like I couldn't share the fact that I had a daughter publicly and enjoy that in that sense without having to go, well, I can't put her name out there. I can't even put her sex out there. I, I don't want anyone to find out that. That sucks. Some people don't realize that that's absolutely warranted. And I've gotten some comments of like, wow, you don't, you don't do any of that stuff. Like, why, why are you that afraid of that? Well, then you've never been, you've never had someone find you and try to threaten you and say they were going to come kill you before. Once that happens, you question things a little bit more. You're, you're less eager to put yourself personally out there. And I know that's just sadly the tip of the iceberg of what everyone else here has experienced. Um, I feel like that's kind of one of the tamer things, sadly. Lindsay, if you don't mind, I mean, do you have a story that you want to call out that is maybe a little bit harsher than the stuff we talked about previously? Yeah, um, I have several. Um, I have gotten death threats before. I, again, I'm sadly used to them. I just delete them, really. Um, I've been told to kill myself in various graphic ways. I've been told that I need to be gang raped. I have had somebody describe the, my car the color up to the parking de decal that's on my car. I've had someone find my parents' home phone number and leave a voicemail. Most recently, I've had an entire group of people say that if they saw me at Raven's Camp, they were going to beat my ass. So I'm not going to Raven's Camp this year. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, they're like, I, I talked to somebody about that. And they were like, oh, they're not going to do anything. Like, they're not. And I'm like, I don't know these people. They could very well do this. This doesn't fix anything by any means, but I'm so sorry you've experienced that. And I'm hoping that this discussion helps maybe open some eyes to people that, that were, would say stuff like that and would go, 
ah, they're not going to do anything. It's not that bad. It's it's they're probably just joking. It's it's whatever. It's it's probably some twelve year old in his basement type of thing. And it's like no, it's it's adult men. It's yeah, <laughs> it's adult it's, men. So. If we were to classify it into something, if we were to put it into a group, yeah, it's it's probably some forty five year old man who just sadly doesn't have a whole lot going on in his life and will absolutely do that. No questions asked because I mean, what are you going to do about it? Clearly, everyone doesn't believe you already. So I feel you on that. Being born a girl, we don't really have the privilege to pretend that it's not serious. We don't really have the privilege to like act like certain threats are empty because you just don't know which ones are or aren't. And you don't know which ones people will act on. So you have to assume everyone will, in a way. Exactly. Exactly. Chrissy, I mean, same question. If you feel comfortable sharing uh, one of your personal stories here. A lot of my stuff comes down mainly to sexual harassment, which I'll get into. Um, I'll just kind of put everything generally, though, the kind of stuff that I experience is the thing that's unique about me is that I started working for my first outlet whenever I was 15, about to turn 16. So I've been in this industry for somewhere between six and seven years now. And one thing that I've always battled and found about myself online, especially when I was covering the Buffalo Bills, there are some good people in that fan base, but they were very nasty to me whenever I first started covering them. Um, people would make jokes about, oh, she's like writing her articles in the cafeteria. She's like a little high school girl, which I wasn't really in high school for very long because I graduated high school when I was 16. So I went on to college pretty early. But it was just kind of this thing, this kind of repeated thing online of, oh, no one should take Chrissy Floyd seriously. We think that she's only like 21 years old anyway. And at the time, it was kind of funny because I was 18. But there were a lot of people that would say that I should be discounted and that I shouldn't be considered credible because I was a certain age and because I was a female. The thing was, though, is that there were other people that come out of college, men that were being taken seriously, they were like 24, and they had the same or less experience that I did in the industry by the time that I was 18. So that's kind of something that I've dealt with. But as far as like the closest thing that it's come to about my whereabouts came in the sexual harassment thread, there was this like local, it's called tiger droppings. Anyone who's affiliated with Louisiana, anyone who's affiliated with LSU whatsoever knows that it's a very, very popular online forum. Everyone in Baton Rouge and everyone who follows LSU knows what that place is. And they had made this 11 page thread. It seemed innocent at first. It was kind of funny almost really admittedly, like the first page of it. It was like, have you met Chrissy Freud, the, the hot sports reporter that covers LSU, pretty much was what it was. And at first, it was kind of like, haha, okay, these people are weird, but okay, bye. And then people started sending it to me because it started circulating so much, apparently, like people that I didn't even know. And they're like, hey, have you seen this? Like, hey, you should really see this. And so it was like what they would change about. They had found all these pictures on my social media, which they had to have found on my Instagram, which I don't really use for media that often. I kind of, kind of like a hybrid, but they had they had taken the time to save all these pictures to their computer and then to post them in the thread and then to zoom in on parts of my body and say, I would change this about her. Oh, I would sleep with her if this, this would make her attend if this, I would like to do this with her or, Oh, she doesn't look as good as this girl does. And then it got into, Oh, I know who that girl is. I see her at Fred's all the time, which Fred's is an establishment around LSU, the bar. There's a group of bars. So that means there are people that are watching me now and people that know who I am, and people that know my whereabouts, and people who are publicly posting my whereabouts online on an online forum that is public that anyone in the world can see. And now it's very popular, and all these people are clicking on it. So for a while, I didn't really feel safe in Baton Rouge. And kind of the way that that whole movement started and how I was prompted to do more about it is because I never intended to start a women in sports movement. I support it. I think it's a great cause. It's something I've adopted now, but that wasn't the original intent. 
which is another thing, is while I was going through all of that, while, while I was standing in a cremation garden because my great-grandmother had just passed away, there were people that were still saying that I was doing this for attention, which really I, I went on Twitter and I was just essentially like, please just make it stop. I said, I've, I'm aware of the thread. I don't want to hear it about it anymore. I don't want to see it. Please do not message me about it. Let's move on from this. Goodbye. Thank you. And I think it got like somewhere around almost 1,500 retweets and all these comments. I started noticing that it was resonating with people. And I didn't even, I tried not to reply to all the hatred that was under it because I mean, whenever you're like mentally just going through it that badly with a death in the family, my dog had almost died. When my dog almost died, I lost all my money. So I was in about the worst place possible whenever they were doing this. So I kind of tried to avoid that. But yeah, I mean, it was scary when people were talking about um, where I was and like trying to talk to me about the situation and everything. And it just became, I'd say that's the closest I've ever been to just not being able to take it. Yeah, that's, that's again, horrible. I, I can't imagine. I mean, as, as a guy, I certainly don't get those types of, of comments about myself. Um, and I know, you know, Lindsay, we kind of half joked about it, uh, sadly, and both depressingly uh, uh, joked about it a little bit of, I had asked you like, hey, is there anyone that you think would be good on this panel? And you very seriously said, pretty much any woman you've ever known would be, yep. would yeah. be able to have this panel just as easily. And it's sad. I have no idea what you ladies go through on a regular basis, just being women um, and certainly being in the public spotlight makes it worse. I can't imagine just the fear of just being out around in town. That's horrifying. I mean, let, let me ask both of you. I'll start with, with you, Chrissy. What kind of surprised you most about that experience? And like, what support were you able to receive from friends or family or an employer or, or anybody else? Was anyone able to kind of step up and, and help you out there? Um, well, Lindsay was one of the people that was very helpful to me. There was honestly an outpouring of support, but there were certain areas of support in which I expected to be supported. Um, and I felt very let down and a lot of other people thought that I was very let down as well. There were a lot of people that came to me, a lot of very prominent people in the industry, a lot of people who I had witnessed go through the same thing. There were some of my family members that were very supportive of it. I mean, I think that some of it was that people just didn't understand. So I had, I had some relatives and some friends that were kind of like trying to help, don't really know what to do for you because we really don't know what this is like. I honestly, in a weird way, I don't know how to say this, made a lot of friends and tightened a lot of bonds through it, which I guess is one thing. It was a very tricky situation uh, to navigate, and there are some things that I kind of wish would have gone on that did not. Yeah, that makes sense, actually. You're right. Like, the people that are supportive, cool, we'll rally around those people. Lack of support is something we'll we'll talk about here shortly, actually. But um, how about you, Lindsay? I mean, I know some of the things you've gone through as well. I, I've been a part of them in some capacity, in some experiences. You know, what surprised you most about your bigger experiences, your more threatening experiences, and what type of support have you received or have you not received, more importantly? I can agree with Chrissy that a lot of, like, obviously my parents don't really get it. They're just older. And I mean, my mom has trouble like texting on her phone. So it's like, it's hard for her to understand like all these people yelling at me. So, and my friends try to understand too, but at the same time, a lot of them, I feel like they don't really understand. A lot of them maybe think, oh, it, it, why doesn't she just ignore it? I'm not holding that against them. But again, like they don't really know what it's like. <laughs> but yeah, you really do strengthen a lot of bonds with other women in the industry when you go through things like this. Because like you mentioned, pretty much any woman 
in sports or women in general that have a platform have gone through this type of thing, whether it's like big or small, like somebody has, everybody has dealt with something like this. You definitely have people that reach out and I've had like NFL players, like coaches reach out to me and be like, don't worry. We know who you are. I'm sorry you're going through this or whatever, but like we got your back, you know? And that means a lot because I'm doing this mostly for myself, but also for peer wise, it's important to have those kinds of bonds and support and everything. Whereas like from like the fans, which is, I guess, like my audience may not take it as well. But like she said, it's meaningful to kind of not only strengthen bonds between other women in sports, but to create them as well. Like I've made a lot of friends and had a lot of great conversations with other women in sports just through going through this type of thing. It's kind of a nice warming message throughout all of this is that, yeah, like you will find some level of support. I will say my personal experience, I did not. And part of that's because I didn't really share it with a lot of people to get into my stuff maybe a little bit more is, and I don't know about you ladies, but to a certain degree, like you feel a sense of shame. Like you feel like, at least for me, I felt like maybe I brought this on or maybe it's not that big of a deal or you, you, you kind of feel guilty, or at least I felt guilty over putting attention on further attention on me talking about it to a certain degree. I don't know if, if any of you kind of feel the same way with that, where you, you kind of almost start blaming yourself to a certain degree. Yeah, for sure. I do. Basically, people tell me that I deserve it because I'm willing to put my opinion out there. I'm willing to speak up. I'm willing to keep my stance on things. And I have people in my mentions daily telling me, like, you deserve this. You say things for attention. So you can't be mad that you get this sort of backlash and things like that. And then, like, the more you hear it, the more you almost believe it. So there have been times when I've been, like, afraid to post, like, my own content. Like, I remember this one time I wrote this, like, long piece about Cam Newton. And I was, like, afraid to post it because I was afraid... And it wasn't anything bad. It was all good things about Cam Newton and like everything that he does in the community and everything. And um, I was afraid to post it because I was afraid what people would say about it. I was afraid of the responses that I would get. And that happens like more often than I would like to admit. I'll hesitate posting something because I'm afraid of <laughs> what people will say back. And that's not a great thing because like this is my job. I'm obviously I'm confident in everything I do and I am confident in everything I say and I stand by everything I say. But at the same time, like some days are worse than others. And sometimes there's a little voice in the back of my head that's telling me like, you post this, somebody's going to say something about it. The sad thing is, is that more often than not, somebody will. Yeah, it's really unfortunate because at the end of the day, formulating your opinion, your well-researched opinion and putting that online, that is your job. And when it starts to affect not just you, but the core of your job, the core of what you do, it's threatening your purpose in a way. Yeah, it makes you question what you're going to put up. It makes you not want to put stuff up. And that's that's how you make money. I mean, in, in the personality business online, content is king. And part of that is publishing stuff on a regular basis. If you have to, before you hit the publish button, think, all right, well, how am I going to get attacked for this one? What's going to happen to me now? You feel less eager to do it. Writer's block happens if you're a writer. Just creativity. It starts slowing down. And I mean, that's that's the death knell of this business for sure is is once you're not creative, once you're consumed with that side of things, your content gets worse. And if your content gets worse, it's only going to increase the number of shitty comments you get. And it's only going to drive away supporters who were following you and might have spoken up on your behalf 
it only drives them further away too because you're not producing as much as you used to. You're not as relevant. And sadly, this medium, this this job, if you're not producing stuff, yeah, you're just not relevant anymore. And uh, you kind of go by the wayside. Chrissy, ha- how about yourself? What have you kind of experienced on that front uh, in terms of, of maybe your personal thoughts on how it affects your work or, or anything like that? It took me a long time before I finally did speak out about anything related to this. At first, whenever people were, would say like nasty and ugly things about how I was doing for attention, I was just, like, I obviously knew that I wasn't, but you literally sit there like, wait, like, am I? Like, it, is this person somehow right? And they're obviously wrong, but it does. It gets into your head in a weird way that people don't understand until they've gone through it. And you start to wonder, like, am I saying too much? Am I doing too much? Am I annoying? Like, am I... <laughs> Should I be talking about this as much as I do? Do other people have it worse than I am? And I'm just complaining. Um, Those are all thoughts that have crossed my mind. During the peak of that stuff, it was very hard to produce content. It was hard to to do a good job of it. It was hard to focus on it. And then the other thing too is like, if your Twitter is open or if your notifications are on your phone, while you're writing, your phone and your other notifications are literally like exploding the whole day. And so that takes away from the focus element too. So I think, yeah, definitely it does in a way, but I also am kind of a person where my content production is my happy place. And so I can go and write the quarterback rankings and kind of make everything else disappear. And then after I've written a couple more things, I kind of start to forget about it. It's only whenever I'm not really like doing stuff that it starts to get in my head, if that makes sense. Completely makes sense. It does. So when you get in those places of just feeling not, I don't know if frozen is the right word, but just sort of kind of paralyzed by the fear of backlash. How do you get yourself out of that space to have the guts to post something? See, it's hard for me to shut off my phone because I'm like a one woman show. So if I'm not on top of something, then it hurts my content, it hurts my status, everything. But I try just to not look at my mentions. And like, sometimes it's hard. I'll take my dog for a walk or I'll go get brunch with a friend or something that will just keep my mind off of it. Once everything starts to slow down, because eventually these people who do this, unfortunately, do it all the time. And they always find somebody else to attack once they're done attacking me. Once like the main, once like the eye of the storm is over, I feel better about being able to go about my regular work life. Yeah, I would I would kind of agree with that. I mean, there's different things that you can do to decompress yourself, the things that Lindsay mentioned, but at the same time, it is hard to completely shut your phone off because like she does everything herself. And then in a way, I have a staff under me, but I'm somewhat similar because I'm the managing editor of both the Mississippi State side of Sports Illustrated and the LSU side of uh, USA Today right now. So you're kind of still the person that's responsible. So I feel like a lot of people don't realize what the harassment stuff is that people can't really always get away from it because sometimes we are so tied to social media and so tied to the media and internet just in general that you almost kind of have to adjust to it. And I guess that I've gotten better at shaking it off over the years because I've just gotten used to it. It's kind of like, oh, like this is something that happens. It's not right, but there's a decent chance that if I post something controversial, or if I post something that's not totally stick to sports, or if I post a sports take that people don't like, that it's probably going to happen again. After I post something like that, I kind of try to stay away from it for a little while and go work on something else and then try to ignore the backlash when I come back. Thank you guys for sharing. I know that's probably very difficult to uh, kind of talk about this vulnerable area. 
just sort of switching gears a little bit, uh, something Matt and I were talking about before the show. Now that you guys have sort of gone through it, you know, you're you're both very accomplished in your field. You spent many years, you know, having this online presence. What have you learned to sort of put out there and hold back? Do you put out different things now than you used to? Have you changed your public persona? And what have you sort of chosen to keep private? I really haven't changed myself or my persona, really. On Instagram stories, I won't post where I'm eating dinner because I don't want people to know where I'm eating dinner. I don't want people to know who I'm eating dinner with. So that kind of stuff I keep hidden, which I really didn't in the past. You won't see me post a picture of a boyfriend or anything like that because, I, again, I don't want to subject him to anything that I get. And from being in this industry, I have a lot of friends in this industry, like players, other media people. And I won't post if I'm hanging out with them because I don't want that person to get vitriol or anything close to what I get just for like hanging out with me. And it's really sad that I have to do that. That's really all I've changed. Again, I just keep as much of my personal life as I can hidden. Yeah, I'd say as far as the personal side of things go, I don't really post that much personally as I used to when I'm out doing something and I have like just like pictures from hiking and stuff like that. I would want to post it and it's perfectly acceptable to post it. But as soon as you are wearing workout gear, or maybe it's like a sports bra and leggings or something like that, someone's going to have something to say about it. And there's that fear that this the big thing that happened in June is going to start right back up again. And so I wouldn't say that I really changed a lot, but I've kind of learned, I guess it's kind of a sad thing to put it as learned because I don't take it as a lesson, but I've kind of I just sit there and kind of pick and choose my battles. I'm like, you know, like I like this picture, but maybe I'm going to post it on Instagram and not Twitter because I don't feel like dealing with the Twitter stuff today. And I don't want to say that it makes it feel like they've that they've won because I know it can be viewed that way, but it's kind of prioritizing your mental health and saying, I don't, I'm going to choose to not go through this today. And unfortunately, I mean, it shouldn't be that way, but the sad reality is that it is. And so you kind of have to in a way. Ultimately, you have to answer to yourself and you need to sort of protect yourself as best you can. It can be easy to feel like you're letting them win, but ultimately you need to kind of put up boundaries for yourself. And I think photos like that are fine. I like them. Like I like to post things where I feel good and that I feel like I look good and they make me happy. But I feel like with the way that the landscape is laid out, that it's just like if you do that and you have 10,000 plus followers, even less as I learned back in June, that people are going to have stuff to say and that there's a chance that it's going to blow up and that's something that you're going to have to be prepared for. I've seen both of you just post a photo of just your normal everyday lives you know, over the last handful of years of like, oh, I'm at the beach or, you know, look at this new hat. Just something as, as simple as that. And then just see like the flood of comments of like slut. And it's like, what the hell? Where the hell did that come from? Like, I'm just on a beach, just in like, just me and my dog, just chilling. Where the <laughs> exactly. hell did this and come from? Too is that there's so there are also professionals in the industry that will go, they're like old fashioned. They're like, oh, you can't post stuff like that. Like, you shouldn't be showing stuff like that. And I'm just like, that's the part that I think bothers me more than the online comments from the random people or the the people who will unfollow or have something to say who are professionals in the industry. I'm like, you should not be telling people what they can and can't post because it's not like I'm posting something just egregious and crazy, you know? Yeah. It's literally just me. It's so frustrating to see from my end too, uh, you know, and, and I imagine other 
kind of just bystanders that see that stuff and it's like i it's just what the hell man like i i can't imagine not being able to post anything about your private life in a personal way like that just as like a, hey i'm feeling good about myself we're doing this thing today yeah like even a celebratory yeah sort of post <laughs> like you said matt you did not want to announce i mean it's very common for people to announce like oh we just had a kid and this is their name and this is their gender and that's just not something that you were able to do You'll notice I, I've still yet to ever say her name because that exact reason. Um, and it's kind of crazy that the, well, I believe it, but it's also sort of hard to believe that professionals will comment at the same level as like Joe Schmo in his basement. It's really sad. They try to do it either more privately or more like subtly in a way that I guess that they fly under the radar so that no one can say that they are and no one can say that they aren't publicly. It's hard to describe, but they do it in a way where they could kind of be like, oh, well, I didn't mean it that way, but they definitely do mean it that way. I've never experienced it to the same level that either of you have, but I definitely have experienced, you know, when someone says something that's like borderline sexist and if you, if you call them out, they're like, oh, just a joke, you're being so sensitive. <laughs> I'm sure any woman listening to this like has experienced that and then you just multiply that by thousands of people. That is sort of probably not even comparable to what it's like for you guys. But it's very frustrating when it's they try to be subtle enough about it. But it's like not that you still pick up on it because then they can always uh, backpedal. Um, it's funny for me how I will post something and then I'll have friends like text me or they can predict what the people are going to say next. Like I said oh, something geez. about how I was at the pool or something. And one of my friends texted me and was like, how many messages are you going to get about how you should post a picture of yourself at the pool? Or how many messages are you going to get about how you are spending time at the pool instead of working, instead of watching film, instead of doing this? And <laughs> like, as you would have guessed it, there were at least 10 of each. And so it's like, it's things like that, that kind of, it's sad that it makes me laugh. But at this point, like, it just makes it better. <laughs> The line I always uses, if you're not laughing at it, you're crying. So out of the two options, it's the better one. But to a certain degree, that kind of emboldens everyone, too, where it's like, oh, it must not be that big of a deal because they're laughing about it. And it's like, right. The, I mean, the only that's the only option I truly have. It's interesting. Both of you have talked about, you know, professionals in the business. And again, you know, while both of you write about football for a living, this is certainly applicable to literally any Internet personality at all. Everyone has. Each niche has their own group, their own followers, their own professionals in it. It echoes a lot of these same, like the victim blaming that happens with like sexual assault of like, ah, oh, you shouldn't have been wearing that up. Oh, you shouldn't have gone there at that time. Oh, you shouldn't do this. And it's like, I, it's so weird to me as just a human being, but especially as a guy to see other guys do that when it's like, we don't ever have to think about, I mean, I, what I'm wearing right now, that's never going to cross my mind uh, where I'm going. If I'm going alone, if I have to park under the lights in, in, a, in a spot because I want to make sure that I'm seen and stuff like that, I, I, I don't personally ever have to worry about any of that stuff. And it sucks to have someone call that out and go, well, you didn't do enough of the right things correctly to not get those comments. Like those people exist, but you didn't do enough to protect yourself from it. And it's like, well, again, what the hell am I supposed to do? I think like something that's also worth saying, Matt, which is like what you're kind of getting at is that when you are in a group that is not really welcomed in a space, no matter what you say, 
when people insult you, they can always default to certain stereotypes or they can default to like just very violent language. And that extends beyond just, you know, being a woman. What about black women? They're going to face racism and sexism. What about black men in very white industries? Uh, I think that's kind of or somebody who is, you know, gay or whatever, whatever the case may be. The thing that is so frustrating at the end of the day is they're not arguing your opinion. That's not what we really care about, or that's not what people tend to care about. They start to attack you, and they have a huge artillery of things that they can pull from if you're not the traditional view. Basically, if you're not like a white guy. (laughs) I'm sorry, there's no other way to say If you're not like a straight white guy, and I'm not trying to be the down with the man type person, but if you're a black man, they, no matter what you do or say, they can always default to racism. If you're a woman, they'll always default to sexism. And God forbid your any combination of groups that people just don't accept, then you're just totally, uh, it's just an avalanche, unfortunately. Some of the core of this discussion is if you're like a white guy and people are insulting you, there's nothing for them to insult you about your gender. Or do you know what I'm saying? And or your race, they don't have that ability to insult you in that way because it doesn't exist because your identity is the dominant identity in whatever, you know, industry you're talking about. Right. Like if Matt posted a picture of himself on the beach, nobody's going to come after him and be like, Matt, you're a slut. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's 100 percent it. If we were to narrow this down into the reasons why people do it, it's you notice they go after whatever is different. So if you're fat, congratulations, you're going to get called fat. If you've got acne, well, that's that's now the thing. If you're a woman, congratulations, that's what you're getting. Black, uh, another minority, LGBTQ, any of that stuff is is what they're going to call out. And I think the more that I look at that stuff, the more that I realize it's people just trying to find a pain point. It's It's the old high school bullying of you're different. I'm going to pick on this difference because that's the thing that I think you are most sensitive about. That's the thing that's going to get you angry or upset. And that's really what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to get you angry or upset. And maybe that makes it sound better when you receive it to a certain degree of like, okay, well, that person's just trying to piss me off or trying to get me upset. But it doesn't doesn't certainly fix anything. And I don't think there's a an easy way to kind of fix that if that makes sense of like if people are just out there trying to hurt if people are sociopaths there's no fixing a sociopath online there just isn't and that's what's so complicated about this issue i've had people say to me before like stop playing the woman card like whenever i i say something like whenever i call somebody out for something i'll have people being like stop playing the woman card like just because you're a woman doesn't mean blah 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 and i'm like well actually like i can have the same take as a man and nine times out of 10, like I'd get attacked more than that man would. The problem with a lot of this is that that online hate, it it can be very concerning because like you were saying that, you know, if you're part of any minority group, if you are a part of any group that has kind of faced oppression in this country, there is violence tied to your experience, your lived experience, no matter how severe or not, No matter what, if you are not kind of like a straight white guy, you have had violence in your life that is directly tied to that identity. So when you receive threatening, violent language online, 
you can point to in-person experiences that back that up. And that's part of the problem of why you have to take it so seriously. One of the big questions that I think we need to, to cover here is, I mean, what can we do about all this? It's all well and good. People now, hopefully, if you're listening to this episode, you now know how terrible it truly can get. And I mean, I, I think it's easy enough for me to say that I don't think we've touched the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg for any of us here in the stuff that's happened. We've just given an example or two. We've all gotten it over a long period of time, over a lot of different things and a lot of terrible different ways. But what can we do about it? I mean, what can be done about it? I think we should start off with the social media companies. I'll ask the three of you, how should social media companies, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, insert whatever, MySpace, we all lean on the terms of service. We all lean on the, uh, all of them say you can't have hate speech. You can't be harassing people. But how should social media companies handle those terms of service violators? And certainly in a way that they're not doing now. I guess I'll start off with you, Chrissy. Honestly, I think the only answer with stuff like that is to delete their accounts and make it to where I think that Instagram has a feature like this where you can ban accounts and all other um, accounts they create. I think that people that do that, though, essentially they're offenders. Their accounts need to be deleted and they need to be banned for life. And I feel like if when you start doing that, then certain people get made an example of. Those people don't exist on social media anymore. And I won't say it will be totally eliminated, but I think it'll be pretty thoroughly eliminated uh, just from the social media standpoint. I think maybe you would see a trend of people like going and finding people's emails and stuff like that more often, which would be um, an adverse effect. But I think that it would be a lot more effective instead of going through this big reporting process when someone has obviously been harassing multiple people online just to delete their account. I agree with that. I saw that Instagram does that where they you can block one account and then any other account that they create. Twitter needs this so badly because I've had so many people like I'll block them. They'll make another account and harass me the same way. Multiple accounts or somebody will get reported for telling me to kill myself and then they'll just make another account and do it again. And Twitter allows them to do it. I, I think that definitely needs to happen. I want to say for the people that go like, well, people can create another account that you're completely right. There are two ways around it. Like how, how can social media companies handle this? I know when I worked at Vox, we could IP ban someone. And there's ways around that, certainly with a VPN or you know various other different ways, you use a different device, that's fine. But having an IP ban ensures that, that person cannot create additional accounts. And that was, largely speaking, pretty successful when moderating stuff at Vox uh, when I was there. In addition to that, you can also use someone's MAC address. So it's like the, the unique identifier for that network. So it's even one step further than an IP address. You can block both of those things all these social media companies have that ability to do that if they really want it to. That wouldn't stop everything. People would still be able to create separate accounts, but you would see a massive reduction in that, that immediate being able to create 12 burners and then you know just harass the ever-living hell out of you. You would see a massive reduction in that, I think. If you did it right, the question is, is why aren't social media companies doing that, I guess, is, is the next big question. That's something that Listeners should maybe start reaching out to the social media companies and saying, why aren't you doing these basic things that we know you have the ability to do? What, what's the end game for you where you're keeping that stuff alive? I can just hear people chirping in on this and saying free speech and you're like oppressing people's ability to speak and things like that. I think 
the all the people that were referencing about banning their accounts these are not people who are like you're ugly you know as we were saying before these are people with real death threats real violent language and even for things unrelated to this things like predators we are talking about this before matt i mean there's so many pedophiles on twitter and i hate to be that person that brings it up it's really disgusting but they're basically they're pretty open about being pedophiles on Twitter, like they should be banned. Like it should not even be a question. If we don't allow pedophiles near children in person, we should not allow them near children online. There's just absolutely no reason why that they should be allowed to have accounts. There's ways to tell. Unfortunately, like I was reading this article that was about just like the prevalence of pedophiles on Twitter, how they will literally put it in their bio or they will put some like thinly veiled version of it, like saying, I think one of them was like trans age, like sexual or something crazy like that, where they're basically saying that they will have sex with anyone of any age. And it's very thinly veiled. And thousands and thousands of accounts had that in their bio. Other users on Twitter would keep reporting them to Twitter, saying these people are pedophiles, like they tried to groom my child or they tried to do this. or And people would just report them. And nothing really comes of it. So, yeah, I think that this this problem is not just for online hate towards public figures, but also just people who are offenders in real life. Their accounts, they should not be able to create accounts online where they can have access to children or, you know, whatever the case may be. That brings about the next question, which is a lot of these terms are, like you said, is he pretty thinly veiled. It's easy to see when someone Again, if you're a social media company, it's pretty easy to do a search for the word slut and be able to figure out who's said these things. You know, should social media companies be monitoring that stuff? I know the big argument against it is like, you know, 1984, it's Big Brother, but the internet's a pretty large place and a very scary place. Should social media companies be monitoring for a lot of these terms to get ahead of those issues and maybe create algorithms to start either suspending those people initially pending a more thorough investigation? Like that type of thing. Do you guys feel like that stuff should be happening automatically? Or do you, as two victims of this type of hate speech, do you guys maybe think that's that's going a little beyond where it should? I'll, I'll start with you, uh, Chrissy. No, I mean, I think immediate suspension and then even removal is necessary because, I mean, just to me, when it comes to stuff like this, you lose your rights as far as free speech and stuff like that goes whenever you're telling people to kill themselves and targeting people. And the other thing that I've noticed about a lot of these people is people that do this, if you go back to their account, they'll tweet a few random weird things, whatever's personal to them, whatever their little thoughts are that no one cares about. And then the majority of their other tweets are them going after multiple people. And usually you're not the only one. And so they contribute nothing to internet society, I guess you could say. So there's no place for them. So to jump the gun and do it the first time, I... I wouldn't really call it jumping the gun at all. That's fair. I mean, how about you, Lindsay? I agree. I just think it could potentially be hard to moderate. But I mean, like Chrissy said, a lot of these people sadly are put in the same group where they have a picture that isn't them. They just recently created their account. And if you look back in their tweets, they don't have a picture of themselves. And I've seen people just go after multiple women. Some people like will tweet the same thing to different people to get a rise out of these people. I'm like, what are you doing? So in that case, like, I feel like the, those type of people 
should just be done with. We don't need that. You're right. Also, when you choose to create an account like Twitter, Instagram, whatever, you're agreeing to those terms and services. So this would sort of be included in that. I mean, no one's coming to your house and gagging you. It's literally just if you want to use this platform, you have to follow these certain rules. The argument I always hear with the free speech side of stuff and and people saying it's getting suppressed is Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all these social media platforms are private. They get to dictate what happens. If they want to ban you because you said something, well, just like a store can kick you out for not wearing pants, the same thing happens here. They're private. They can choose who they let in. Exactly. And certainly telling people to kill themselves, calling people names, doing that type of stuff is absolutely breaching those terms of service. And when it happens repeatedly, it's there's a clear cut case to, to start banning people, I think, without any legal issues, not a lawyer by any means. But it seems like a pretty cut and dry case when we talk about it in that sense. But I think a lot of people, they view the Internet as a public utility, and it's not. These are private businesses on a highway effectively. And again, I can't go into a Lowe's and pee on the cash register without someone escorting me out. I shouldn't be able to do I it mean, on you Twitter. Can. Well, you yeah, can. You- <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I'm going to get a billy club to the back of the neck and, and get drunk I mean, out. Matt, have you ever been to a Walmart past 9 p.m.? That is literally a wild west. You are not wrong. You're not wrong. But that's exactly it. Like Walmart then kicks those people out. I think it only makes sense. But no, you're, you're 100% right. That wild stuff happens in real life, too. And it's interesting to see that people think of the Internet as unlike a grocery store when it's exactly that. Uh, when you're going on Amazon, when you're going on Twitter, it's like going to a public forum. It's like going to your your local town hall and just shouting gibberish, <laughs> uh, except for elected officials sometimes have to deal with it because it's part of their job. Random person on the internet or person who writes about football, in this case of, of you ladies, they didn't sign up for that. They shouldn't have to sign up for that. It's not part of their job description and, and social media maybe should be a little bit more uh, on top of that stuff. I guess the next question is, is, since all of us have received some pretty awful hate, how accountable do you think social media should be for their users' actions, especially if they're not going to ban them, if they're not going to handle the terms of service violators and things happen? I mean, do you think that these social media companies and internet as a whole should maybe be made an example of, of when someone takes a threat from online and turns it into a real one. I mean, do you think Twitter should be just as responsible as the murderer? Um, I wouldn't say maybe quite like totally responsible because they can't necessarily control people being that way all the time. But I do think they're responsible for their lack of effectiveness in their actions. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've dealt with Twitter before as far as like reporting people and nothing's been done. And it just comes to the question of, how is that going to change? I guess like if you're not going to do something first, like you don't know if this person's going to take it the next step further. So if you had just squashed it when it was first brought upon your attention, then we wouldn't be here. Obviously, like nothing's happened to me yet. <laughs> um, but like at that point, like if I am reporting someone on Twitter for making a threat and they don't do anything and then something happens to me, then I do think Twitter could be held responsible in a sense that they didn't take action when they could have. Makes sense. I, I kind of personally view it as it's like a bar that's over serving someone and then they get into a car accident with a DUI. 
that bar should absolutely be responsible for it because you let it happen. You know what was happening there. You could clearly see it. And then despite that, you know, you didn't get them in the car and force them to drive. But, man, you supplied them with everything possible to do the harm that they did. It seems like a pretty easy, maybe not one to one, but it seems like as a private company, when you give everyone the ammunition to do that, it seems like it should be there should be a consequence beyond just a, oh, it's a shame that person was on our platform. We support people and and we, you know, we aim to squash that stuff. And the typical PR statements that you hear after those things happen, it should be more than that for sure, especially when Twitter's net worth is $4.4 billion. They probably could afford to do a little bit more than just random PR statements that probably cost them 10K a piece while they ignore the issue. As someone who spent a lot of time working in a restaurant and bars, bartenders, you know who just cannot drive. You know who to give water. You know who to take you know keys away from. And I feel like because it happens so frequently online with this online hate and such, there must be a way to sort of systematize this monitoring. Do you know what I'm saying? Like they're, they have the data. They, there must be a way they know who will probably escalate and who won't to a certain extent. Like, yes, you can never predict anything, but one, a person saying one mean comment versus somebody creating 30 different accounts to harass a hundred different people. That's a different story. There is a way to distinguish who may be more threatening versus who's just being rude. There's that kind of infamous story of a young woman who was buying some stuff at Target and then received an ad for like her new baby type of thing. And like, she didn't even know she was pregnant. I think a lot of people, especially older generations, don't realize how much is tracked on these social media companies or by these social media companies. Facebook knows where you go literally everywhere online. They've, even if you don't have an account, if you, if your friends and family do, and you're in a photo, they've created an account for you. It's a shadow account that then tracks all of your purchases, tracks all the stuff, analyzes the photos you're in to see what clothing you wear, what type of things you might need, where you go, that type of information. These social media companies absolutely know everything about you. The idea that they don't have that information or can't create an algorithm to figure out if you're more prone to violence or if you're not based on your comments on their platform is bunk completely. And, and, I welcome any social media company of CEO if wants to get on here and talk about it. Absolutely would love to, but I've been in that world in, in development. They absolutely have that information a thousand percent on literally everyone that uses their platform. So it's inexcusable for them to not be able to do that stuff. Uh, that's not an excuse I ever want to hear from anyone. People are obvious about, can be obvious about it too. People will brag about buying a gun after threatening someone. I must have been a junior in college. Somebody who was at my school tweeted that they were going to shoot up our school. And it was a bad tweet. It wasn't just, I'm going to shoot up a school. It was specific location, specific time when they were going to do it. It was a disturbing tweet. A lot of us saw it. We reported it to the police. Thankfully, enough of us reported it to the police that they actually went in, found the student. It's pretty easy to find them. Found the student, went to their dorm. And guess what? They had a gun. So imagine if the police had not responded to all of us reporting it. People are very bold. People who tweet that they will threaten, like they will shoot up a school and then they post a picture on Facebook of them with their new gun. I think that should be investigated. 
Well, social media companies are certainly complicit in in their ability to to do these things, but let's talk about employers and and this might be a sensitive topic and and I certainly don't need anyone to flat out name anybody, but you know, employers, do you think companies need to have plans in place like a flowchart specific roles for for employee support, social media training on this type of stuff? Do you think that like just in this day and age of the internet being what it is, certainly again as a internet personality, do you think that should just come with the job of you get onboarded, here get into this training, you got legal, you got this, and then cool, here's how you're going to deal with online hate which you're absolutely going to get. Here's who you should contact, here's what happens if it's this, if it's this, if it's this. Here are the things you can call and then we'll handle our part to get law enforcement involved to get someone on those social media companies like do you think that should just be standard yeah i absolutely do think that it should be standard um i think that having at least some type of small response or some type of plan or at least making a statement in a timely manner if you don't do any of those things to me that's absolutely unacceptable i agree like she said it's something that should be given to everybody but maybe also like a lot of people on the other side, like the one being harassed, like a lot of people, like we've said, don't know what it's like until you actually go through it. So maybe as far as like training goes, maybe have people listen to something like this to where, you know, you hear stories from victims and people it actually happens to. Yeah, that is absolutely one of the reasons why we're doing this. And, and this is a discussion that I don't want to have, you know, to be honest with you, it's sad. I will all speak for myself here, but I teared up a little bit earlier. It's it's this is a very sad, very, very troubling thing that is difficult to talk about. And I certainly don't want to talk about it, but I think we should. I think this is part of the reason why it's necessary, unfortunately. Let me dive a little further into this this employer side of things. What training do you think companies should give public facing staff? We'll we'll start with you, Lindsay. Maybe have them listen to something like this. Maybe have them just know that they're not the only ones who deal with it. Um, everybody really deals with it at some point. If I were the boss of like a company of public facing people, I would make sure that they know that they can come to me with anything that they face from being on the other side, like a lot of times you feel like alone in this, even though you know other people are dealing with it. It's like you feel targeted. You feel like you're the one being harassed. And I would love to have somebody like on my side to be able to like fight with me, if that makes sense. And just like know that somebody up above you isn't going to tolerate it either. Because I feel like a lot of, especially like with what Chrissy said, is other people in journalism also are doing the bullying. You feel like alone and you feel like other people are just going to jump on regardless of how high they may rank. So if you have somebody high ranking that's going to stand up for you, then that would mean a lot to me. Okay. Uh, how, how about you, Chrissy? I mean, what, what training do you think companies should give their public facing staff? They need to somehow be brought to awareness of just how bad it is, how frequent it is, and the fact that something needs to be done about it. Because I can tell you right now that I don't believe that all companies, all publishers, all media organizations even are of the belief that anything should be done about it or that they have any responsibility toward it. And I think that just eliminating that culture, just taking the first steps to eliminate that culture is so important. Yeah, Absolutely. the Absolutely. passivity of, you know, hate is going to hate, you're going to get trolls. To me, that's kind of an old fashioned mindset. And it's also 
usually that is a mindset that is held by people who have never experienced it, never will experience it. It's almost like the inevitability of it makes it okay, which is not, I mean, obviously it's not okay, but you're right. Just like people go in accepting it and it's easy for them to accept it because it hasn't happened to them. Yeah. All the training I've ever received, which is zilch to be honest with you is ignore the haters or or don't feed the trolls is kind of the the common lines you'll hear and it's you know hopefully again as we've discussed here not feeding them that's that's certainly victim blaming in its own right but you're not feeding them i i I got nothing to do i mean i'm just posting content like you pay me to post or or that i'm trying to build my podcast or i'm trying to build my blog or i'm trying to do this type of stuff not feeding anyone i hope they wouldn't comment i don't want them to comment please leave me alone it seems like that is the prevalent mindset as a whole of, of, yeah, just don't feed the trolls. And, you know, after 20 years of being online in some capacity, the experiment, the idea that the trolls can be fed in the first place should be debunked entirely. And it's, it's pretty clear that those people are going to happen regardless of what you do or who you are. Um, so more certainly has to be done. I wonder, and I think this would be helpful for every company, and I think maybe it speaks to mental health as a whole, but I think a lot of these public-facing jobs should have a line they should be able to call that will A, get in touch with their supervisor, or or at least will let their supervisor know that something like this has happened, and then some access to therapy of some type to get over some of these things. Maybe not get over, that's, that's the wrong word, but to help process some of this stuff and rebuild that confidence that we've talked about is so quickly lost when this stuff happens. For a lot of these large companies, especially, it's a drop in the bucket in terms of of costs and employee morale, employee retention would dramatically go through the roof. It seems, again, like a no brainer, but maybe it's just a matter of having to shift that culture away from the idea that it's your fault you publish something online. So you got a death threat. Yeah. And I feel like we're just now seeing like in recent years, the backlash of sexual harassment in the workplace. So I feel like this online thing is just going to continue until like hopefully somewhere down the road, people will start speaking up about it. But I mean, it all stems from there. Like most of the time, like if you experience sexual harassment in the workplace, they give the guy a slap on the wrist because it's usually a guy and they send him to like a sexual harassment training where they have to watch a 30 minute video on their computer and that's it. You know, we're just now seeing like people like, I don't want to name drop, but like Matt Lauer like is getting people are just now getting punished for doing these kinds of things. So it raises the question for me, how much farther down the line are people actually going to start paying the price for doing these things online? I think it's a great point. This whole discussion, I've been thinking about that as well, about how there almost needs to be another wave of the Me Too movement for online specifically, because that's essentially what this is, where we have barely just acknowledged how common like physical assaults are in in real life. We've barely, barely acknowledged that it happens every day, all the time to most women. And some people are still wrapping their heads around that. And it's like, well, wait till they find out that you get rape threats online all the time. You know what I'm saying? So hopefully it will come. But I think, unfortunately, things have to sort of be acknowledged in real life before they can be acknowledged online because we just tend to think that online is not real life but it is it is it has real life consequences so i would say online's an extension of of our reality you guys have both been through this stuff before 
as victims of this stuff? Again, I don't think there's any clear cut answer, and I think it's going to differ for each one of you, maybe. But as victims, I mean, you're talking to someone who is just thinking about getting into this field, into this profession, into being an online personality. What can you tell them to maybe help them protect themselves in this genre? Is there anything that they can do specifically ahead of time or any way that they can look at this scenario that might help protect their sanity a little bit and protect themselves physically? Uh, we'll, We'll start off with you, Chrissy. Honestly, just as sad as it sounds, say to be really prepared for it and to try to make sure that you're aware of when you post things, maybe to not make your whereabouts very public. And then whenever you are out in public, like when I was at Fred's and these other places that people had allegedly seen me at, keep a watchful eye. And then whenever it does start to happen, as far as the hateful comments, Police them as far as the ones that are genuine threats and try to follow that up with law enforcement as best you can whenever things get too bad to make sure that you seek some type of mental health because it's absolutely necessary in some cases. How about you, Lindsay? I agree. Therapy is great. I actually went to trauma therapy for this a couple years ago. I had had people say to me, like, you went to therapy for that? And I'm like, yeah, there was a time when I would literally cry every night because of what people would say to me online. Just because it was so upsetting that I was just coming to work every day and trying to do my job and just getting these like hateful messages, like it really can kick you down. As sad as it is to say, a lot of people ask me, like, what would you do to get into this? Uh, I would either say, don't do it, <laughs> because I feel like I've, I mean, I've thought of myself about quitting like numerous times. And I feel like if I was younger and I wasn't as established as I was, like, I would definitely quit. Like, that's honestly like where I am right now. It takes some thick skin. It takes a lot of confidence in yourself to be able to do this. I know I'm good at what I do. I know that I take pride in in what I do and I know that I work hard. So if Joe Schmo on the internet is telling me I suck, I don't work hard, and he is in a profession that's nowhere close to mine, then that's okay with me. Absolutely. I'll add this. I think we've talked about it quite a bit in this episode, but Get a hold of other people in your field, in your niche, and kind of create a little community of content creators. Chances are they've all experienced it. It it is nice to kind of rally around one another. You find the people you, that will support you, you support them to kind of huddle around. And it's it's not perfect by any means. It's not therapy, but it is a chance to go like, did you see what this asshole did? Like, God, this sucks so bad. And and just that kind of commiserating can help take a little bit of the sting out of it, can help, at least in my personal opinion, it can. Again, by no means is it a perfect answer, but at least you'll find a a supportive group of people that you know you can trust to have these discussions with and hopefully bring yourself a little bit of peace of mind when it inevitably does happen. And and as again, as we've discussed, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. You're going to get it at some point. It's just a matter of how bad is it going to be. And how frequent is it going to be, which is played off of a lot of other factors. But if you make a name for yourself online, you're going to get hate. You're going to get threats. You're going to get terrible comments. Having some type of a support group is helpful. And in addition to that, certainly therapy, 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 therapy. As a person who's been in therapy now for over a decade, I cannot speak highly enough about it regardless of the issues, but certainly in this field. 
having a, a therapist be able to kind of walk you through some of these things and that trauma stuff that you had mentioned, Lindsay, you know, you absolutely can get PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder from this level of hate, from these level of threats. And it can trigger, as we've mentioned all along, can trigger that sense of no matter where you are, you're constantly looking over your shoulder, waiting for something to happen. That would be one of the symbols, one of the signs of, of having PTSD. For you people that are doing it, also go to therapy because what the hell's wrong with you? Get your shit figured out. Chrissy, you had mentioned you know, law enforcement, getting law enforcement involved. I know from my personal experiences and seeing some people, some of my staff members over the years have to deal with this. Law enforcement's been largely speaking useless. Like they don't know how to handle either. They kind of take a lot of the same approach of like, ah, well, you shouldn't be online or then maybe you should get out of this field or ah, it's not that serious. They're not really going to come get you. Like we've got other things to worry about. You know, do you think that we as a country maybe need to update our laws to meet these types of new standards and maybe have specific internet harassment departments to handle this stuff? Or do you think like that's just going to be an inevitable it's going to happen eventually, but it'll happen in good time. I think it's a nice idea in theory, but as someone who took media law classes in college, as you guys may have or may know someone who, who has, there has been just extensive work done and all these trials and attempts and opinions on this throughout history that if history repeats itself, it doesn't look like much of anything is going to change because of that fine line between free speech and hate speech. It's always going to exist. And then as far as the threats go, I mean, I think that there, there's got to be a way that to take that more seriously, that if someone says that they're going to kill someone or that they want to kill someone or that they wish they were dead, uh, that definitely needs to be investigated. And I feel like it's kind of just been pushed to the wayside for as long as it's existed. How about you, Lindsay? Uh, what do you feel kind of in terms of how should law enforcement maybe start handling these things in, in the future? Just by taking it more seriously. I mean, I have reached out a couple times for various issues of threats and things like that. And it's basically the message is received as, well, until they do something, until they really do something, we can't do anything. And then you kind of, again, you go into feeling like alone and having to feel like, you can't walk your dog by yourself or, you know, you can't go out without somebody else with you and things like that. So the loneliness aspect of this, I don't think we, we, we haven't talked as much about it, sadly, but that's absolutely, I think, a feeling that all of us have gotten that, that when this stuff happens, you feel utterly and completely alone without a lot of support because nobody understands what you do. It's like trying to, you know, explain your job to a parent or something where it's like, ah, they do Internet things. Friends are the same way. Even sometimes people in the field can be the same way that, yeah, you just, you feel so ever alone in these situations, which again, that's why you should get a group of people that you can trust and support in this field or in whatever field you're in to kind of commiserate over the stuff when it happens for sure. Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, before we kind of wrap up today, something I know Matt and I wanted to touch on was how do bystanders kind of play into this whole situation if you yourself are seeing this online hate or uh, basically like what what do you think should be done about that do you think that it has to change person to person or you know when do you get involved and when do you just sort of let things go 
Well, I think when you see something that you would ought to say something as far as this stuff goes. And what I mean by that is almost more than the people that I notice that do stand up and support women in sports and minorities and stuff like that. I also notice the people who like cover the same things as me and people who I interact with on a regular basis on social media that'll see something like that happen, like even with myself. And they just don't say anything. They don't like the tweet. They don't retweet the tweet. They don't comment. They don't quote tweet it. They don't, they literally don't say anything. They don't message me about it. They don't do anything. I'm like, I know that you see it. So if everyone else thinks it's so terrible and it's clearly out of line, why aren't you? Because there are a lot of people, especially in the women in sports movement um, that are around me and that are around other people and they just keep quiet. And if you keep quiet whenever stuff like that's happening and there's like a big movement toward it, then you almost become a part of the problem. I would love to see like more men speak up about this. I would love to see. I love it when like somebody says something to me and it's horrible. And then I see like a man come in and be like, stop saying that stuff to her. Like, what's wrong with you? And I know like a lot of men like don't want to get involved. They don't want to be the one to have these people turn on them and be like, you're a simp or like whatever the the kids like to say now, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Um, like she's not going to sleep with you, bro. You know, like if I had a nickel for every time I, I saw that, but it's like, I mean, I see it and I appreciate another man speaking up and saying like, stop saying that to her or stop acting that way. Like you're acting like a child, like, please stop. Like it's, it says a lot about the people that are willing to do that and are willing to be like, that are willing to take the she's not going to sleep with you, bro comments. And, but I also see it when men don't speak up about it and when they just let it go because they don't want to get involved. And I mean, I respect that. Like I sometimes I'm in like the mental space where I don't want to get involved. Like I've had enough today. I've had a long day. I don't want to deal with it. But at the same time, like if you see it frequently happening and don't say anything, like that's a problem too. I like seeing other men and other people, whether they're in the sports industry or not, like kind of not that I need anybody to fight for me, but um, it's nice to kind of have support when something bad is happening to you. No matter how much we don't want it to be this way, their voice almost carries more weight than yours if you defended yourself. Because like, especially if it's a man who's defending you against something that could be sexist or whatever, what have you, there is a little bit of weight in that in their voice. And I think the same thing sort of goes as well for when white people call out racism. Like, I think that we need to do that as well, because at the end of the day, a racist is more likely to listen to a white person. And it sounds really, really horrible to say it like that, but it is true. And I think that I agree. Sometimes you can't always get involved. Sometimes you just are not in the mental space. But if you see it happening a lot and you don't do anything, then you're part of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'll speak as the the straight white guy in the, in the room. You know, it, it is so difficult because you, it, it's just once you see it happening, you realize it's everywhere. And it's like, man, I could make a full time job just out of like slapping people's hands on Twitter or or any any social media for that matter. of just going like, what's wrong with you? Stop it. Act your age. Be a normal human being or like leave and go outside and go do something else for for just leave people alone. Why, why do you got to why do you got to be doing this? I don't want to get into the the idea that it's like, you know, it's a bunch of guys in their basement because it's it's not. It's not. It really isn't. And that's the depressing part. But it's like, man, don't don't you 
you you guys have way too much time on your hands that it's so difficult to combat as as an ally in this instance of like it just feels like that would just be my normal everyday job so personally like i i try to i try to see stuff when i see stuff it happening frequently or it's happening a lot or someone's getting attacked by a bunch of people i try to step in in those circumstances when i can but largely speaking i i just report and move on because it's like I, I just don't have time to sit there and do it but that's certainly no excuse and i i think you know for myself maybe once a day i need to go online and just like you know backhand somebody online for being a fool and just do my part And maybe if enough people did that stuff we would shove those people back into the the small little corner of the internet they like to hang out. Maybe this is the wave of change we need to start seeing these things happen across the board from, from again, bystanders all the way up to the companies that employ people to help improve those things. So thank you guys so very, very much for coming on and having this difficult discussion with us. Again, I know it's not fun, and I'm positive that both of you are going to receive a ton of crap afterwards, so I apologize for the hate that's going to happen. Um, and I'll be doing my part to slap down comments as I can, but, uh, thank you guys very much for putting yourself out there. And I know that's not easy to do and hopefully it's appreciated. Hopefully things change. Hopefully we never ever have to have this conversation again, but I, I'm not foolish enough to think that's the case. So again, thank you from, from the bottom of my heart for both of you. And again, so sorry that you guys have had to experience this stuff and deal with this. Hopefully we'll make some change. Yeah, of course. Thank you to talk more about what we can do to handle and navigate our mental health when using social media, what coping strategies we can use when being harassed online, and how we can equip future generations to handle the online world better than what we have been, is Dr. Margaret Schwartz, a licensed psychologist at Yorland Psychological in York, Pennsylvania. Thanks for coming on, Dr. Schwartz. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. Before any of the major cyberbullying happens, what can we do as just people to better navigate and protect our mental health when using social media? Probably the most important thing is, is some limiting, limiting the time that we're spending on social media, particularly since, you know, my practice has gone completely online since last March, that it means that I'm spending hours and hours and hours on the computer. I think that it's good for our brains, good for our eyes, good for us physically to turn things off, walk away, go do something else. So that that we're in the habit of doing that anyway, that maybe the kinds of things that you do access. So I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, and I will typically spend a little time every day just peek to see what family and friends are doing and then I'm done. Limiting time, having other things to do, other real world things to do. Get out and walk, you know, exercise, really talk to people. We're mostly using phone. Use the, the actual phone, <laughs> the actual phone <laughs> ability of this thing you're, we're all carrying around in our hands and pockets and whatnot. I think that that's, that's pretty important to keep real activity going. Well, the quick rundown of that is stop doom scrolling, stop just going through Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and just scrolling for hours on end. Maybe get out, go take a walk with your family, go talk to someone face to face or over the phone. But more importantly, set some, some type of time limits for yourself 
of after work, I'm going to get an hour of online time, but that's it. And then, then I'm going to go do something else. That's just probably better for our mental health as a whole, even without cyberbullying. But uh, with that added to it, it sounds like, yeah, just better navigating our time on there sounds like the easiest way to get around it. Absolutely. Now, for those people who are, again, I don't want to use the, the term famous here, but we'll use it for this, that are maybe more, uh, have more notoriety online and whose job is more online and social media. When they get harassed online, which is kind of inevitable, if we're being honest, what are some coping strategies that can that they can use to help get out of maybe that shame and guilt spiral or, or just kind of help themselves get over the shock to the system that is some of this terrible, uh, vile stuff that's said? The very first thing is go talk to someone, talk to partners, talk to friends, if you need, seek out professionals. I think it's natural to feel shame when this stuff happens. And our automatic response to shame is to go hide. And the deal is counter that. Don't hide. Go talk to somebody. Tell somebody about it. If you're working with someone, share with who you're working with. That's first and foremost is talk to somebody. Tell someone. Now, it may also be, depending upon what was said or how it was presented, that you kind of up the ante in who you're, you're talking to. So it may be that you, you do contact authorities. You contact the police. You contact authorities, whoever is running the site that you're on, that this pops up on. But the point is not to keep it a secret, not to hide, not to do that. That would be the first step, okay? The next step would be, again, turn off. I'm trained as a cognitive behavioral therapist, and cognitive behavioral therapists really like acronyms. And one that I use frequently is, and is easy to remember, is ABC. A is for accumulate positives. So that would be activities. Go do other activities. You know, pursue your interests. What are those interests? Get with friends people that are emotionally supportive of you, even if you're not necessarily talking about the bullying that happened. It may actually be that you deliberately, although the first step is talk to people, talk to someone, but it also may be giving yourself a break and talking with friends about other stuff. You know, what's going on with them so that there's a little distraction going on. The B and the ABC is build mastery find other things to do and become good at these activities. So sports, do you have a sport? Hobbies that you might get into. If you're into your yard, you're getting out there and gardening and then looking back and enjoying whether it's, you know, growing a tomato plant uh, on your back patio or deck and then enjoying the literal fruits of your efforts or getting out there and building a sport. I was never very good at tennis, but by golly, once upon a time I tried. So yeah, get out there and and do things and then be able to step back and acknowledge how what you did went well so that you're feeling good about building positive. And then the next is cope ahead. C is for ABC. C is for cope ahead. Create a plan in case it happens again. Who are the people that you go to to talk about it. It may even be that you need to write your plan down. I find that often that if we write things down or 
as I often encourage my clients to do, is the writing down may be on that phone that's in your pocket, that's sitting on your desk, that's always within hand's reach and using note apps to put your plan, what you're going to do, you know, who you're going to call. Maybe the phone numbers are there to remind you. It may be that you don't keep authorities, you know, you don't keep the police numbers naturally in your phone contact list, but it may be in your plan, your coping ahead plan. The other thing is this, that as you're feeling better, it also may dawn on you that there were things you maybe would have done, you could have done during the accumulate positives and building mastery that occurs to you, but you didn't kind of get around to it, that that's there, you know, to kind of remind you, oh yeah, I could go do that. You know, I forgot to do that. I really enjoy doing that. A, a day at the beach, you know, a day somewhere out about visiting museums, doing something that is enjoyable that maybe you don't do all the time. So it, it's very refreshing. Anyway, that could go in your cope ahead as well. Those are sort of the ABCs. Talk to somebody and then accumulate positive. Go, go do some other things that are fun and enjoyable. Build mastery through various activities that you enjoy. Cope ahead. Create a plan for the future. And um, just in case it comes up again, which it sounds like it's highly likely it could. Yes, yes. What I kind of heard there is that basically throw yourself into some things that aren't the thing you're trying to think of, not think about anymore, which is the, the, the harassment, the cyberbullying, that type of thing. Pour yourself into something that is just more enjoyable, get it out of your mind. And then once you're fresh and, and not flustered anymore, create a plan of action to kind of how you want to handle this that is the best for you. Uh, for each person, that's going to be different. As you mentioned, it might be, you know, go to a beach. It might be go to a museum. It might be tend to your garden. It might be sew a quilt, get to that hobby that you're doing, do some woodworking, just something that takes your mind off of what the topic is itself or, or the issue itself while you kind of just manage those feelings and, and get your feet back underneath of you. So that way you can handle it the appropriate way, which is, is always a good thing. And I, I know from personal experience, it's super difficult to, in those moments, to get your head right and get your head around a, a thing. Your emotions tend to kind of run rampant and often control the situation, which gets you in trouble from either a professional standpoint where you say something you shouldn't say, or just from a, you end up beating yourself up. We, we get into that shame and guilt spiral that we've talked about previously. So great, great actionable advice there. Let's now talk a little bit about the future. I mean, I've got a kid. There, there's hopefully some of this gets passed around to some children are out there that are maybe just starting to get into the online world. I think something that we've talked about in this podcast before, and we talked about it in this episode is I don't think we really know how to handle the internet. It's still such a relatively new thing. Granted, it's been a few decades, but laws haven't caught up to where the internet is. Our, our thoughts haven't caught up to where the internet is. We don't entirely know everything that happens online, even with our children. What are some things that we can do to maybe teach our children ahead of time, the stranger dangers of the internet of sorts? How can we help them maybe cope with some of this stuff themselves to either come to us as adults to help us out there or, or to their administrators at, at school or anywhere else to kind of handle the online world, the negative sides of the online world? Some of this just falls in line with what is under safety planning in general for children in reference to 
abuse in general. And that is teaching our children, first and foremost, come find us, to talk to an adult. Even with very young children, we can identify who are adults you can go to. So mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, you know, the daycare teacher, you know, later the teacher, the doctor, who are the people caring adults in their world and identify those people. I mean, actually actively identify those people. The idea is to tell, to not keep it a secret. It's my understanding. I have to say that my kids are grown, (laughs) Um, but I do have very young grandchildren. I do know that all of these tablets and whatnot that schools have put into the hands of, of students, they have controls on them. And I've had school professionals over the past year tell me that they can see everything that the kids are doing with those computers, everything that they're doing. I think that that's super duper important. I think having pretty strong parental controls, particularly early on while we're teaching kids about internet safety, so that long before that they are actually able to access things pretty freely, which has kind of happened because my kids, like sort of the computer thing was sort of getting started as they were hitting middle school and high school, but it really blossomed once they were in college and beyond. So I think that, you know, even the generation of parents with young kids, this wasn't a thing for them as a kid, (laughs) you know? So I think those parental controls, it's imperative that parents are familiar with those, know how to work them, know how to check them, whether it's a phone, a tablet, a computer, that they do that. I think as well, limiting the time that young children, that children are able to access and that they're actually allowed to be using this stuff. First of all, you know, sleep experts tell us that the light emitted from screens is, you know, will affect our sleep. And so There needs to be a definite cutoff time in the evening, at least an hour, possibly, probably more from when a child is looking at a computer or a phone screen or what have you till bedtime. And with that, the parents are monitoring. An early suggestion that I think is still smart is that the devices are in what I'm going to call public area of the house. The computer a child is accessing is in a family room, in a a room where maybe the corner of the kitchen, that it's a place that family, parents are coming and going and are around and can be looking over the shoulder of a child. I think the next thing is to be aware of what are the signs that a child has been exposed to this. And, you know, once again, the behaviors associated with shame and fear, hiding. Kids will begin to isolate. They'll socially isolate not only at school, now that many kids are back, going to be going back to school, but they'll isolate at home. You know, they hang out in their room. Now, teenagers will do that ordinarily, but I think that, you know, this may be that parents go visit them in their rooms, you know, like check up with them, see what's going on. Yeah, they become quiet and withdrawn. So not only isolating, quiet and withdrawn. A loss of interest in previously high interest activities. So if they were into a sport, they may not be interested in that sport anymore or whatever 
that extracurricular kind of activity was. Part of that may be because those that are engaging in the cyberbullying are, in fact, you know, involved in that activity. And so the bullying isn't only happening online, it may be happening in real life. They may have trouble sleeping because, you know, when we're worried, when we're upset, you know, maybe having nightmares and whatnot, it's it's hard to sleep. It, it interrupts our sleep. So you may be seeing trouble sleeping. Avoidance. They may be avoiding all sorts of things that typically they would have engaged in. That's very much related with the isolation and withdrawal. Next is anger. You know, they may be more easily angered. One of the things in general for children, I'm going to roughly say two and up, okay, is fairly abrupt changes in behavior that are towards the negative. When you see that, you need to be asking what's going on. What happened? What changed? What's different? And start talking, building a habit of conversation with children. So which could be over books, you know, you're reading that nightly book and you're talking about the pictures to start with very young children. What's happening in the pictures? What's happening in the story? Questions about what you anticipate is going to happen next with the character. That's building conversation and taking that forward. You know, some very, very, very old research from like, oh, you know, ancient times in the 80s talked about kids who did better in school. What were some common things? And one of them was that they engaged in 15 minutes, only 15 minutes of conversation with their parents a day. And that the family sat down together daily for an evening meal. So not in front of the television, all that malarkey is turned off and they sit down together. And typically, how long is that meal? This is not dieting. This is having a meal. So this is not, this is not fine silver in China. Okay. It's a, it's dinner with kids. Yes. Okay. So I speculate, I think that that 15 minutes is that meal in the evening when conversation. So it's not just what did you do in school today? Chose a cue. You know, it's maybe mom and dad share what something interesting they did during the day. What was something interesting you did today? You know, sharing that, getting conversation going. If children are in the habit of conversation, then it's much easier for them to be able, particularly if sometimes the conversation is difficult. You know, parents share a difficult thing they had to deal with. Now kids, it, it's role model. This is protective stuff across the board for children because they are in the habit of talking with adults talking with their parents. And I do know that perpetrators of abuse, they don't want to mess with children that talk because they're going to be found out. Absolutely. It's that quiet, automatically quiet, withdrawn kid. So I think those things can just apply here to this realm as well. Absolutely. That, that all sounds like, like it makes sense. Certainly you're the expert, but all those things as you're rattling them off, I mean, they all line up with, with what makes sense. Like you said, uh, uh, having that family time, having that ability to talk openly, uh, modeling that stuff for the child. And, you know, as we discussed with, with parents who are maybe going through this or, or adults who are going through this, that time of being able to say, look, we're going to have a half an hour or, or an hour, whatever the time is, of online time where we all sit around maybe in, in the, the living room and we're all on our tablets, on our phones, on whatever. But then at a certain time that goes away, 
making that there and then turning that into maybe a conversation about oh, what did you see that was online? What cool things there? What what difficult things did I see or or did I experience? Then just kind of creates that open air along with that time that you you need as a family, that family time to be able to maybe have the kids speak up about that stuff ahead of time. And again, as we talked about with adults, keeping it internal is the first reaction with most of these things. It doesn't get any better as an adult. It certainly isn't going to get any better as a kid uh, where maybe you feel like you've, you've had some of this coming or whatever the case might be there. Awesome advice there. And, and thank you so much, Dr. Schwartz, about coming on and maybe helping some people get over the hump with some actionable advice that they can use before, during, and after they are online harassed or, or cyberbullied. Well, thank you again for having me. Excellent. This is by no means an easy conversation to have, but it's one that is becoming increasingly necessary. I hope that this episode has helped shine a spotlight on what internet hate can look like at its extreme and maybe help just a few people learn they aren't alone in dealing with it. I also want to thank our very special guests, Chrissy Freud. You can find her on Twitter at C-R-I-S-S-Y underscore F-R-O-Y-D. Lindsay OK. You could find her on Twitter at L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-Y-O-K. And Isabel Manjo, who you can find at Twitter at I-Z-Z-Y-S underscore I-N-K underscore. Again, Chrissy Freud at Chrissy underscore Freud. Lindsay OK at Lindsay Y-O-K. And Isabel Manjo at Izzy's underscore Inc. underscore. I also want to thank Dr. Margaret Schwartz for coming on and lending her expertise as a medical professional. Look, we've told the story now. The rest is up to you as listeners. Make sure to share this episode and the related stats and graphics we're going to be having on our social media, as well as on our show notes around your social media. That way we can spread it further and get it in front of the people that need it the most. 